0: I'm Steve Fisher. New York Times bestselling author Christina Baker Klein returns for part two of our chat with more about her new book, The Exiles, working on getting three of her novels made for TV and film, and more. This is Life Slices. This is a question I love to ask writers. Do you outline, or is it more organic?
1: sort of yes and no. I with these books, I do a serious historical outline, meaning what happened in this time period in this moment and especially with a book like a piece of the world about real people where there were real things that happened, I would read 10 different books, say, and then all the facts were slightly different from each other. This is very common that you'll have an anecdote that has, one outcome in one book and one outcome in another or it happened five years differently, depending. And then you see what you've got and for me, and you sort of realize, you, you figure out the story that you want to tell based on that. But I often use as a rubric, um, I use an organizing principle a lot of times because I'm not great at plot. So for example, in my first novel, which is called Sweetwater, I used the Oristia" by Aeschylus, which is a series of three plays. And I just mapped out the plot of those three plays. They're they're joined. They're three plays about the same characters. And I used the same names, but I changed them to modern American names. But like Horace, Orestes was Horace, etc. And uh, Cassandra, who is fated to be see, heard but not believed, was my central character. Was Cassie Cassandra? And so nobody except one reviewer out of like 50 reviews, one reviewer figured out that it was based on the Oresteia. But that was the structure that I followed. For my last novel, The Exiles, through the three characters at the book of, of, of the convict women, that storyline, I used The Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell. I went back to the original source. I mapped it out. And that hero's journey in The Exiles goes through the three characters. So that was super helpful to me. On... My most literary book, which is a piece of the world, I would say, I use the most commercial source for structure, which is a book called Save the Cat. It's a screenwriting guide, and it's an amazing book. I recommend it to anyone. In terms of plot, it has all kinds of incredible advice. Like One one piece of advice is, at a certain point, you want a, char- a main character to die, it can be a metaphorical death, a leaving or a mental illness or some dropping out in some way, but it's much better if it's an actual death. I thought that was so interesting. So there are a lot of suggestions like that. And so because that novel, Piece of the World, is set in, it's like a one-act play. It's set in a house and my character almost never leaves. She's there, she's trapped there because she's disabled, essentially. People come and go, but nothing really happens. And in her real life, nothing really happened. So I had to create a story out of nothing. And so having this very commercial story uh, structure helped me figure out how to create a story out of that situation.
0: Now, you said you write for when you're writing your books, you write four pages a day, roughly, that you give yourself that goal. So when you start the next day, do you feel that you have to go back and read the four pages from the day before before you can move forward or and tinker away? I mean, I, that's another rabbit hole that a writer can get stuck in.
1: I know, I used to do that all the time. And now I do, sometimes I will skim, I often edit the previous day I know Hemingway said he always he would end often in mid sentence in an exciting part instead of finishing it because he wanted to have momentum when he came back and not have to start from the beginning. I don't do exactly that, but a form of that. And then I I do try to read over what I need to. But what I've learned again in my old age, what I've learned is I used to write slowly and edit less, and now I write more quickly and edit more, trusting that I know I'm gonna have to do a ton of editing, like 10 drafts. It's that part is really hard. But I do think I'm capturing lightning in a bottle. I do think that if I'm if I so I'll for example, I'll write a scene and then I'll just keep going and write it from in a different way, like all dialogue, or I'll set myself tasks like that that are kind of prompts that are now write a a paragraph of description, and that might go somewhere else. And there's another thing I found about my own writing process, which is that when I'm dutifully doing my writing in the morning, sometimes I don't get at the moments of revelation that are my reader. Like if you go to Goodreads and look at quotes by Christina Baker Klein, all of those quotes from my books are the things that I wrote with a glass of wine at five in the afternoon when I was grabbing an hour at the end of a day like that felt no pressure, where I was sort of filtering through what I was writing about and writing about what the character was really experiencing or feeling. And those are very important in my work, I've come to see, but I can't often force them into my Getting the story told moments. So I've learned that it helps me to write when I don't feel any pressure to write. So sometimes those moments come sitting on the subway, grabbing the moment or on a train or in the backseat of a car when, I, or sometimes in a concert, listening to music, and I can just let my mind go. If I grab those moments, I, I'm often really happy with what I come up with. They don't always appear when I'm forcing myself to work.
0: Were you more a morning person or a morning writer or a night writer?
1: I mean, when I'm revising, it can be 12 or 15 hours a day, and you don't notice as much because you're just down there doing it. In a way, the time goes really fast when you revise. When I'm writing, the time doesn't always go so fast. I like to read all the time. I write, and I just At night, I might want to watch Netflix or something and get a little break and be with my my husband and see my kids if they're around. And I'm not exactly a morning person. I get up earlier as I get older, but kind of settle in around 10 or 11 and write through till about three or something if I can. And, you know, I have a lot of other aspects to my life. I'm teaching in two programs. I'm, I'm on the board of a bunch of things. I'm doing events with other writers who I want to support and uh, blurbing books and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of like, then there are all the books coming and going, paperbacks coming out. And so there's kind of a big business aspect or separate part of my life as a writer the, now and not now, I mean, in the past decade. And so that take, that's time consuming too.
0: Has writing for you gotten easier as you've gotten farther into your career or harder?
1: It's gotten harder. I mean, I know that's horrible news for anyone who's just starting out, but the reason it's gotten harder is that i'm always I'm always pushing myself. I think my books have gotten better. The only thing that's easier is that I know I can finish a book and so and let me tell you that's no small thing I mean I When I was in the middle of A Piece of the World, I said to my husband, I honestly don't know if this is a book. I don't. I don't know. Nothing happens in this book. I'm so terrified. Maybe I'm just delusional, but there's anything here. I really wasn't sure. I mean, I was maybe three quarters of the way through and I just I just didn't know. There's another thing that happens, which is that about 120 pages in this is true for most writers who are writing novels. And maybe memoirs, I don't know, because I haven't written one. After about 120 pages, I'm like, okay, this was a stupid idea, and now I'm bored. I don't think I can do another twice of this, and I don't have enough to say, and I've don't know what I'm doing. And this is a dumb idea. Why did I ever do this? And, you know, I think a lot of people put the book under their beds at that point, (laughs) metaphorically under their beds or hidden in a file and just don't start something else. And when I teach, I always tell my students to, you got to push through because you know it's coming between like page 100 and 200. You're going to feel this. You're going to feel that you made a terrible mistake. A lot of people give up and try something else, but they're always going to get back to that. It's like, wherever you go, there you are. You're always going to get back to that place where you feel you made a terrible mistake.
0: How many unfinished manuscripts are you sitting on?
1: None. I'm sitting on none because I've published every book I've ever written. But there was one book I started right before Orphan Train, and it was called The Dream House. And it was all sort of planned out. I wrote like 60 pages of it. And I really thought I was going to do it. And then this story came along for me. And I realized I needed to be more ambitious. I needed to have a larger canvas. And the dream house, I could already see the publication trajectory, it was going to come out and sell a number of copies and be okay. But it wasn't going to change anyone's life and certainly not mine. And I just felt that I, if I kept writing books like that, I would end up with a certain kind of career that I I wasn't prepared to settle into. So that book became, I think I published those 60 pages as three different stories eventually in literary magazines. And so that was a nice outcome, but I, I, I never wrote that book. And at this point, I feel like I have to write. I, I feel like I've set a bar for myself of writing books in which stuff happens.
0: Do you have a sounding board that you work with? Does your husband read your pages as you're going? Does your editor, I mean, does, or do you just want to keep it all private?
1: So now my editor and I are so close. We've been together for about five books, and she, I, she, I, we just, we actually, we sort of text and email all the time. And so I'm always, we're always tossing ideas back and forth. And she's, my agent is amazing, but I bet I've had a few agents. And so I don't have that relationship quite with my agent. I really have it with my editor and I'm lucky to have that. But I also have some really close friends who are novelists and we do that with each other all the time. And it's so important to have friends. I always tell my students also, in whatever way you can build community, you must Make that a priority because having other friends who are doing what you're doing will make all the difference in your life and the way you develop as a writer, in my view, because it's a weird thing to do and most people don't do it. You need to be around other people who are experiencing what you're experiencing and create a community for yourself. And I will say that now online, you can really do that beautifully. There are so many ways to find places. And I will just make a plug for writing conferences, but The one I'm on the board of is the Kauai Writers Festival, and they, Kauai Writers Conference, I think it's called. That is one of the best because they have writers, they they have published authors, fiction and nonfiction, agents and editors hanging out in Kauai. You normally would never get to see these gatekeepers in their bathing suits with a whole bunch of aspiring writers, some of whom have published books already and some of whom are just starting out. And it's super casual, and but great, interesting sessions and opportunities to work personally with writers and agents and editors. And it, I've seen so many book deals come out of this conference. You have to schlep yourself to Hawaii and pay the fee to go to the conference, but It's amazing. So it's really, I can't even tell you how many books I've seen published by participants in that conference. And it's just a great way to meet people. And even, as I said, even better in a way, these writers are meeting each other and and creating community among themselves.
0: Well, I've always found, for me anyway, when I share pages with somebody, if I haven't finished the project, both good and bad comments can affect me. And that if somebody says, this is terrible, what are you doing? Then I start questioning myself and vice versa. If they say, this is really good, then I kind of get stuck and I go, oh, I don't know if I can keep this going.
1: I agree with you. I don't share pages until my novel is really ready to be seen, even with my editor. I mean, I know that she has maybe 3 good reads in her of my book and and that's amazing. She's a real real editor meaning she really edits on the page, I know a lot of people don't these days. I feel lucky about that, but I also don't want to try her patience and I don't want to embarrass myself and I don't want to give her things when they're too raw or she won't be able to do a real edit on it. So I wait a long time before I show anybody anything. And then I don't share it with a lot of people. I only a couple of people I
0: really trust. Does your husband read your books?
1: He was the first reader for everything at, toward the beginning when he was an English literature PhD candidate. And, and then he went into television and doesn't have any time to read all my books in advance anymore. I don't need that so much from him anymore. We have other things to talk about. And I get really mad when he criticizes me. So it's probably better to keep it keep it separate.
0: What about your children? Have they read your work?
1: They're slowly reading my books. My oldest son, I remember his classic line from high school, when he said to me, I was like, didn't just read Orphan Train. Like A lot of people are reading this book and like it. And he said, I'm just not sure I want to be that close to the inside of your brain. (laughs) (laughs) Which, by the way, is totally legitimate. Because sometimes when you read books by friends, you're like, oh, this is interesting. I'm learning a lot about this person, you know? so I don't want to force it on them. My second son has been making a sort of task of reading my books. And, and with Exiles, you and I talked before we got on this podcast, Steve, about some of the surprises, that there are some shocking things. He wrote me a text, and it this just, just gives nothing away. He just said, oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. I have to walk around the block to calm myself down. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I can understand. I kind of felt that way, too.
1: And then he called me and he's like, all right, explain yourself. I think, as you said, as the book goes on, you sort of you it makes sense. But I do understand that there are some shocking things that happen in that book.
0: You are now at the point you have gotten the golden ticket, in a sense, in that three of your books, uh, three of your books are in development as TV series or films. What is that like?
1: It's great in terms of when the book comes out and you get the. Hollywood reporter, you know, variety splashy announcement. That's great because people pay attention to that. I have learned it all takes so much time that you, it's very much hurry up and wait. So, you know, my, I think a total of five of my books have been optioned. The last three books keep getting optioned and it, there's all this movement. And then COVID happened, you know, we had signed on big, a huge star, a huge director for Orphan Train. All of that fell through in March of 2020 because of COVID and they couldn't, they had a great script by a major screenwriter and all of this stuff. Now they're pivoting to television for Orphan Train. So they have big plans and it's fun to hear about, but I don't know what will happen with that. I will say that with Exiles, it's an all-female production team. Steve, as you and I have discussed, it's called Made Up Stories They did The Undoing and Big Little Lies and uh, Gone Girl and Wild, and they're just amazing. And I think that project will probably happen first. So there's the Bible, what they call the Bible, which is the series story and the pilot episode are being written now by this wonderful writer. And I'm an executive producer so i'm consulting with her a little bit which i love and i think it i think it'll probably happen so that's exciting but i'm also not holding my breath
0: is it following the book or i mean if the bible is written out i'm guessing that they've outlined the different episodes and have they stuck pretty much to your book or have things changed
1: i won't know exactly until i see the pilot and the bible but I think their goal is to tell my stories, but actually to expand them. Like for example, I have a character named Olive, one of my favorite characters. She's sort of a body prostitute who <laughs> she has been around the block many a time and she knows, the way the world works. And she's very world weary, but she's also really funny. She takes up with a woman on the boat who the two of them eventually go on to become entrepreneurs. She has a really wonderful presence in the exiles, but I never fleshed out her story because she was sort of a secondary character. And they were just saying, we love Olive and we want to tell her story and figure out who she really is. So their idea is to do lots of flashbacks to England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales and show the early lives of these other characters.
0: I interviewed Michael Connolly once and I asked him that question because there was one of his books made into a movie that was not very good. And I asked him about that and he said, well, and that was relatively early early on in his career so now he's producing everything so things have changed he said you know what at the time he said i just realized the movie is not mine the book was mine and you have to let it go
1: you know i think i felt that way for a while but now that i'm executive producing this one i asked for executive producer credit on orphan trade and they said yes i i do care it doesn't mean it's going to be good. It's actually really hard to make a good movie. Someone said it's as hard to make a bad movie as it is to make a good movie. I mean, it all takes work and you don't necessarily know for a long time, even in a series or anything. I think what I understand from the Hollywood world that my friends, that I have friends in is that when you're on a bad movie, you know, like you can tell that it's not good, but The line between a great movie and a mediocre movie, it sometimes comes down to editing and the director's vision and things that you can't see when it's in process. So I don't I don't take for granted that those are gonna be good movies. I mean, I don't know, or good series. I, I of course do care. I would like for them to be good. But an interesting thing about publishing is that it doesn't matter that much. You still, even with even if it doesn't get great reviews, you your it helps your book. It helps your book. So I sort of had that in mind.
0: When you when you're writing your characters, do you ever think in terms of casting? I,
1: I maybe should. I know people do that and then they and then their dreams come true. And, but it was funny when the when the film team, the the TV team was we were talking about casting. There's a character in the novel who's a surgeon, Dunn, and they call him the hot doctor, like the hot priest from Fleabag. They said, We're casting him as the hot doctor. And they were talking about Paul Mescal, who's this sort of hot young actor who was in Sally Rooney's adaptations, adaptation of Sally Rooney novel. And so I kind of laughed and loved that idea. I was like, if I thought, thought about that when I was writing the character, maybe I would have done some different things. But I, I haven't really done that. But I like that. I do like, maybe I should do that for the next.
0: Is there a particular thematic thread that runs through your books?
1: Gosh, you know, the funny thing or the interesting thing about being reviewed is that reviewers will tell you your themes, even if you didn't always know what they were. Um, And so reviewers tell me. I'm interested in the poor and the dispossessed in these recent books. I want to tell stories of little known pieces of history that have been hidden or obscured because they're immigrant stories or other kinds of displacement stories so that's one thing. I think my novels are character-driven. I often write about family secrets in one way or another, things that have been kept secret, that, secrets that fester and destroy people's lives. Even though I've written the last, these three novels are set in the past and my new one is as well, I also would like to go back to writing contemporary fiction and see where it takes me. I have a friend, Lily King, who's a novelist and she wrote Euphoria, which is about Margaret Mead. Based on her life story, and then she went back to writing. She wrote *Writers and Lovers*, which came out last year, and is a wonderful novel. It's done really well. And I was doing an event with her, and I I said, but she said, oh my gosh, all the research, you know, for historical novels or novels set in the past. And I said, I know, but you had to research the nineties, right? And she's like, no, I lived through the nineties. I didn't do any research at all. <laughs> it was much faster. So then I got jealous and I thought I need to write another contemporary novel and not do all this research. But yeah, I would say that I would, those things are my themes. And lately, I mean, I I have written stories with male protagonists uh, novels and and have written from men's point of view, but I tend to write novels with female protagonists because women's stories are told less, and I, I'm really interested in them, especially throughout history.
0: Very often, men are chastised for writing women characters in the sense that they never get them right. Do you feel a special pressure when you're writing a male character? How do I get into the brain of a male?
1: Yeah, I do. And there's also a whole question of writing anybody who's not from your cultural background, and the idea... Idea of appropriation and of what we can as human beings, what we are allowed to express, what we have the authority to express, what we have the right to express and the ability. Humans who pay attention to human nature can write about anything. Actually, I believe that. But I also am hugely sensitive to the idea that there are certain stories and certain perspectives that White writers should think twice about being a covering. And I dealt with that directly in The Exiles. I I went into this novel planning to write about convict women who are poor white women from, you know, as I said, the bottom of the social ladder from Britain. When I got to Australia to do research, I realized that this story of what happened to the Aboriginal Tasmanian people was at exactly the same time period, the the major battles and the major displacement happened in the 1840s and, and surrounding period, and that it would be irresponsible of me not to show, illuminate that history. And so I wrote in the third person, not in the first person about that, and I also wrote about a child's experience, not an adult's experience, which I think mitigated some of the issues. But at the same time, I was very, very aware of of stepping into serious potholes. And I I worked with two sensitivity readers that my publisher brought in. But even before that, I worked with sort of the world expert on Tasmanian Aboriginal history, a, a professor named Gregory Lehman, who's written many books and articles, consulted for films with museums, with other writers, with galleries, with universities. And he, is, he teaches Tasmanian studies and history. Uh, he was fantastic and read my novel and was very helpful in making sure that I was sensitive and got and got the facts right.
0: You kind of alluded to this, but what most writers or a lot of writers are taught in the beginning, write what you know. That drives me crazy because it kind of implies that you have to live it to know it. But if you immerse yourself in the research of knowing the time period, is that just as effective as living through something?
1: I think that write your way into knowing is a way that I approach my stories because I no longer write what I know at all. I write things I know nothing about and I'm learning. And I always think of myself as that character, Harold, Harold and the Purple Crayon. I don't know if you know that children's book where he he writes his way into the story. He has to open the door. So he has to draw the door frame, and then has to draw the doorknob before he can turn it and go go into the room. He has to draw the boat before he can go across the water. I feel myself in my writing doing that, writing my way into knowledge and learning as I go.
0: When you finish a book, do you have a feeling that you need to depressurize in some way or postpartum depression?
1: Oh my God, no depression. I'm so elated. I mean, but it takes so long to be Done. You're not really done until you're finished with even the galleys from the publisher. And I'm always doing last minute changes that my editor's like, What are you doing? I can't until I can completely let it go. I'm still tinkering with it. And in fact, a special edition of Orphan Train came out like four year, three years, four years later, and I re-edited the entire book and I added a 10-page scene. So that's how crazy I am because I just couldn't let it go. I, there were things in that book that I just wanted to pick.
0: Do you ever get thrown when you read something you've written and go, Oh, I wrote that? You could say either that's exceptionally good, I'm surprised that came out of me, or I can't believe I wrote that. That was, what was I thinking?
1: Well, my son was like, wow, you know a lot of words, mom. <laughs> like He was surprised. It's painful sometimes because you're realizing, you're remembering where you were. And the worst thing is to read something and feel that you took a shortcut in some way or didn't really follow through as far as you should have. And those are always questions I ask myself. So I don't like to look back.
0: (laughs) What do you want your readers to take away from your books?
1: I hope my readers will take away some nugget about human nature that they remember. About how we move through the world as individuals and are affected by the time period we live in and the people we come across and the circumstances of the political environment, whether we have the right to vote or not, whether we have rights as a people or not. I write novels that people always tell me they learn from, but I don't set out to do that I want people to be swept up in a story and come away with some new understanding, perhaps, about a time period and a place and a, and a way of being.
0: What advice would you give to a fledgling writer of any age who says, I want to be a writer, I want to write, write books?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is what I say to my own children, which is you may pursue the art, but just understand that your avocation may not be your vocation and you need to have a marketable skill and you need to know that you can work and you need to assume that you will work in addition to doing the thing you love and you may make a living at it, but you, you can't count on that. You have to love it enough to do it without waiting for that day that you're going to get your big break.
0: Well, Christina Baker Klein, I am very appreciative of you being here. Very fascinating stuff. And I love your books. To anyone who hasn't read your books yet, I say go out and get one now, because it's the closest thing to actually watching a movie or a TV series without staring at a screen, unless you get the electronic version and read it on Kindle or something.
1: And by the way, actually, the audiobooks are really good, especially of or- Exiles. I just think it's a brilliant. And, and, and Orphan Train people love as well. So you can just listen.
0: If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe and like us on social media and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios.